The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 33, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Okay, we're in Joshua 9. It's verses 1 through 18. I know that's a lot of verses, but we'll get through them. Uh, this is the introductory sermon, and then next week will be the analysis of what this chapter is telling us. Okay, this is entitled, We Are Your Servants. It's part one. Okay. Joshua 9, 1 through 18. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country, your servants have come 
because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtorot. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which were filled new, and see, they are torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Be'erot, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had swore to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. The week before typing this sermon, it was my birthday. For my birthday, some special folks gave me a copy of the movie Leap of Faith. The main character is played by the comedian and actor Steve Martin. The basic plot is that of a touring evangelistic ministry that exists pretty much for the sake of ripping people off through false miracles, false healings, and outright deceit. And yet, the evangelist, Jonas Nightingale, openly admits this to those who ask him about it. Most don't simply because they want to believe in the miraculous. The ministry is so obviously pointing to the false healing ministries in the world today that one cannot help but identify one or more of them, even if you've only watched a few minutes of Christian TV. They have a whole crew out doing what Jonas Nightingale's crew was doing. They are slick, they are showy, and they are sharks. Our text verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. As I watched the movie, I was literally upset at what I was watching. Not because Steve Martin was inaccurately portraying these people, but because he was accurately portraying them. They are shameless people who exploit the name of Jesus Christ in order to get rich and famous. What makes me even more upset is that the movie accurately portrayed the people who went to his revivals. Like those who fall for the false teachers of the church, they are just dumb, ignorant sheep that are taken in by such people. This is why the Bible equates human beings to sheep. That's exactly why. And the reason for this comes down to one thing, a lack of knowledge about the word. Hosea, quoting the Lord, said of Israel, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. People are ripped off. They're led down the heresy highway. 
never given the truth about 10,000 points of proper doctrine, and they lead miserable lives simply because they lack proper knowledge of the word. Told to tithe? Well, you've been duped. Mormon? You're following a false Christ. Accepting of homosexuality or some other perversion in your church? You are accepting what Christ openly and strongly condemns. Believe you can lose your salvation? You haven't been properly instructed on what the word grace means. Told you must be circumcised? Paul says that is anathema. You have fallen from grace and you are or will be a debtor to the entire law. We could go on and on and on, but instead we will go on. Learn your Bible, have discernment and forget, trust, but verify. Rather, trust no one until verified. In today's passage, Israel will trust without full verification, even though they thought they had it. Why? Because they did not ask the Lord. Be sure to ask the Lord about stuff. Great things such as these are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two separate thoughts for you today. The first is, perhaps you dwell among us. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, and it came to pass when all the kings were on this side of the Jordan. Though obvious, the reference as to which side of the Jordan it is speaking of must be inferred. And it came to pass, according to hearing, all the kings who inside the Jordan. It simply says, inside the Jordan. From there, one must know that this is speaking of Canaan proper. The word got out very quickly that first Jericho and now I had been destroyed. Because of this, it is understood that a slow and methodical chipping away at the cities of the land is starting to take place. Unless something is done about this, each city stood on its own, and as such, it could not stand. This included those kings, verse 1 continues, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon. All of the locations are actually stated in the singular, in the hill country, in the lowland, and in all the coastland of the sea, the great, toward against the Lebanon. The three areas mentioned would be the hill country, meaning the mountains of Ephraim and Judah, but probably not the mountains of the northeastern area. Those will be dealt with later in Joshua. Next is the Shephla, or lowland, which is the plain area to the west of Jerusalem. It is also known as the Judean foothills. It comprises an area somewhat between Joppa and Gaza. The Hof, or coastland, probably would be the area in the north from Joppa to Tyre, due to the words toward against the Lebanon. Of these locations, the people groups are, verse 1 continues, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Heard about it. It is correct. Each is identified in the singular. Thus, each is set in opposition to the nation of Israel. Hence, taken together, they are six nations against one. Hittite means terror, terrible, fearsome. Amorite means talkers if it's active or renown if it is passive. Canaanite means humiliated or humbled or even subdued. Perizzite means a breach or eruption. Hivite means villagers or more specifically tent villagers. Jebusite means treading down. 
active or trodden underfoot if it is passive. It is when these groups heard, verse 2, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. And gathered together to battle with Joshua and with Israel, mouth one. The expression one mouth means that instead of placing the interests of their individual clan above the others, they united as if one person, speaking with one thought and expressing it with one voice. John Gill presents the thought well, saying, were unanimous in their counsels and resolution, they all confederated together and agreed as one man to make a common cause of it and oppose Israel with their united forces. However, in contrast to these people groups, there is a portion of them that understands the gravity of the situation. Despite the magnificent force that could be mustered, if God was not on their side, they could not prevail. And because of their understanding about what the Lord had done to Egypt, including the crossing of the Red Sea, as well as the parting of the Jordan, it was clearly evident that he was with Israel. Therefore, it next says, verse 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, Ve'yosheve givon shame'u et asher asa Yehoshua l'irecho ve'la'ai, and dwellers Gibeon heard what had done Joshua to Jericho and to the eye. The name Gibeon or Givon comes from Gavia, meaning a cup or a bowl. When upside down, it looks like a hill. As such, it means hill town or hilly. These are of the Hivite people group. Their city will eventually be granted to the tribe of Benjamin. That's found in Joshua 18.25, and it will become a Levitical city within Benjamin, which is found in Joshua 21, verse 17. At this point, they have heard of the destruction that was brought against both Jericho and I, and they knew they would not be long for this world if they did not act. Therefore, verse 4, they worked craftily. And did also in cunning. Here the word gum, or also, is referring to Joshua of the previous verse, where the same word, asa, or to do, is used. Ashur asa had done Joshua, ve'ya'asu did gam himma. Joshua did this, and so they did that. And the that they have done is to act in a cunning or crafty way. That craftiness led them to, verse 4 continues, and went and pretended to be ambassadors. The words pretended to be are not correct. Being ambassadors is exactly what they are and went as ambassadors. It is a word found only here in the Bible, tsayar. It signifies acting as an envoy, coming from seer or an envoy. These men were, in fact, sent out as envoys. Hence, the craftiness is not in who they are, but in what they will do. If your Bible reads differently, such as, and they took along provisions, some of you may be following along and your Bible says that, the change comes from substituting a single consonant in the Hebrew. This is how the Greek and some other ancient translations make it. Thus, it would agree with the word moldy bread that will be mentioned in verse 12. But that is dealt with in verse 5, so that seems less likely. Either way, as for the craftiness itself, that begins to be explained with the next words. Verse 4 continues, And they took old sacks on their donkeys. 
Vayiku Sakim Balim La Hamorehem, and took sacks worn out to their donkeys. Here is a new word, bale, or worn out. It will be seen four times in verses 9, 4, and 9, 5, and then only one more time in the Bible out in Ezekiel 23, verse 43. At this point, we have no idea what the old sacks are for, but they are placed on the donkeys. The word hamor or donkey comes from hamar, meaning to ferment or to boil. The idea is that as a pot boils, it glows from its redness. Therefore, the donkey gets its name from its red dun color. Next, it mentions, verse 4 continues, old wineskins, torn and mended. Venodot yayin balim um bukaim im sorarayim, and skins wine old and burst and bound up. The word nod or wineskin is used here for the first of six times. It is a bag made of skin and used for fluids. In this case, it is for fermented wine. It does not say the place where the skin's burst is sewn. Rather, they're just bound up. The surest way to repair such a skin would be to put a patch on it and to sew it. Instead, this gives the sense of them grabbing the skin to close the hole and then winding a string around it to tie it off as people would do on a journey. Does everybody see that? Normally, you just take the time and sew on a patch. But if you're on a journey, you're not going to do that. So you grab it and you bind it up and you fix it when you get back home. They're making it very convincing. It still isn't known what the items are for, but it is getting intriguing as the narrative continues. One can see that whatever is coming, it is a deception given in contrast to Israel's war against I. Israel had sent out a diversionary attack against the city, which was then overtaken by the main force. Now we are seeing the inhabitants of Gibeon using their own trickery in order to overtake Israel in some unusual way. As such, it explains the contrasting expression which began the verse, and did also in cunning. Israel was cunning against I, and now Gibeon is being cunning against Israel. This crafty plan continues with, verse 5, old and patched sandals on their feet, unalot balot umtualot beoraglehem, and shoes old and spotted in their feet. The word talah is elsewhere translated as spotted. As such, the idea is that they had shoes that needed patches, and the patches made them look mottled, or it could be that they were worn through or stained, and thus they looked spotted. The word translated as shoe can mean a sandal, but one patches a shoe while one mends a sandal. Also, verse 5 continues, and old garments on themselves. Uslamot balot alehem, and garments old upon them. We still haven't been told what is coming, but it's starting to sound like a hobo convention in a Roger Miller song. Also, verse 5 continues, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And all bread, provision, dry, had become speckled. Here is another new word, nikud. It comes from an unused word meaning to mark by puncturing or branding. And so this means it is either one, crumbly, thus falling apart and making speckles, two, pierced by vermin that ate holes in it, or three, moldy because it has spots. The only other time it is used outside of this chapter is in 1 Kings 14, verse 3, where it cannot mean moldy. 
Rather, there it speaks of a type of bread, probably for dipping, as in honey. Hence, pierced or crumbly bread is surely what is meant here. Verse 6, And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, and to the men of Israel. The translation is close enough to get the full sense. These Gibeonites have left with all of their old stuff and traveled a short distance from their city to the Gilgal by the Jordan. It is a distance that can be traveled in a single night, as is seen in Joshua 10, verse 9. Verse 6 continues, We have come from a far country. Me'eretz rechoka banu, from land far we have come. This isn't just a lie, but a blatant one. The word far can mean a lot of things, maybe even if they were from the border by Lebanon, but it cannot mean a distance of what is reckoned as 15 or 20 miles. That might be a long walk for someone whose donkey is broken down on the side of the road, but not for a group of ambassadors who are coming to meet with another group of people about an important matter. The craftiness and the preparations has not yet been explained, but their cunning is perfectly evident from the lie. Verse 6 continues, Now therefore, make a covenant with us. And now cut to us covenant. The meaning is that a sacrifice is made, and those who make it invoke their god or gods, swearing allegiance to be faithful to the covenant that is made in connection with the cutting of the sacrifice. It was, at times, accompanied by dividing the sacrificed animals in half, and those who agreed to the stipulations would pass through the pieces of the animal. In this, it was a way of stating that the same end should come upon those who violate the covenant as that of the animal. In other words, it is an irrevocable matter. Such a covenant can be fulfilled, but it cannot be arbitrarily revoked. Hence, when Jesus spoke of the law of Moses, he said the following, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In the case of Israel, even to this day, it is an indication that they are still bound to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant until they accept the terms of the New Covenant. As for the meeting between Israel and the Gibeonites, verse 7, Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, The Hebrew spoken form, which is singular, is different from the written plural to avoid a confusion in what is conveyed. But the subject and the object are singular. What I'm saying is that in certain passages of the Hebrew Bible, there will be what's called the keri and the ketiv. One is what they read aloud. The other is what is actually written. And they change it and read it differently because it'll confuse people if they read the written form. Okay, that's what I'm telling you. The written form is actually what it says, and so you have to discern what is being told us. The written form is Vayomeru ish Yisrael el ha and said, plural, man, singular, Israel, unto the Hivite, which is singular. Though confusing, it is essentially all of the men speaking with one voice. To make it a bit more understandable, it could be rendered, and they said, the man of Israel unto the Hivite. This would take us in thought back to verse 1, where all of the people groups spoke with one mouth. The same is being conveyed here. There is a united voice that is being portrayed as the word of a single man, Israel, and it is conveying words to a single entity. 
the Hivite. As noted, the name Hivite means tent villager, but it is identical to Chava, or life. The name of Adam's wife, Eve, is Chava. Abarim notes that the form Chava means to lay out in order, to live collectively, and describes investing one's personal sovereignty into a living, collective-like symbiont. It's mostly translated as to prostrate, which is to submit oneself wholly and bodily to a collective or to the leader of that collective. That's Abarim's analysis of that word. That is surprisingly what they are doing right now. The response to them by Israel is, verse 7 continues, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? Perhaps in my, Israel, singular, midst you, singular, dwell. And how I, singular, make to you, singular, covenant. The entire point of what is being conveyed is that Israel has already made a claim on the land of Canaan, my midst. As this is so, the obvious question is, how can I, Israel, make a covenant with you, people group, if you live in my midst? Added to that would be the implied thought, because you do not belong here any longer. Of these confusing words, and specifically the term, in my midst, Kyle says, which is to be explained on the ground that only one of the Israelites, namely Joshua, was speaking as the mouthpiece of all of the rest. The plural, vayomeru, and they said, is used because Joshua spoke in the name of the people. I would argue it is exactly the opposite of what Kyle analyzed. The people are speaking as a single entity in the previous clause. Then said, plural, the men of Israel, perhaps in my singular midst, you dwell. Rather than Joshua being referred to in the plural. Israel is saying that anyone in the land does not belong there any longer because Israel, the single entity comprised of many, has moved in. Obviously, such could not be the case, and so Israel could never agree to such a thing. Hence, the Gibeonites continue. Verse 8, but they said to Joshua, we are your servants. The translation is now correct. It is plural, and they are addressing the leader of Israel alone. But more, it completely blows off the people's questions as if they were never asked. Instead, they masterfully speak in the customary way found elsewhere in Scripture to indicate courteous fellowship with a hint of subordination. We are your servants. They have come to make a covenant, and thus they are, at this time, subordinating themselves to Joshua in order to secure it, showing that they are willing to accept reasonable terms. Despite this, Joshua remains unsatisfied. Verse 8 continues, and Joshua said to them, Again, it is correct. Joshua alone speaks now to them all. The people have spoken. They have conveyed the fact that they are united and that the land belongs to Israel. And Joshua now prods further to determine their people group and their land with direct questions. Verse 8 continues. Who are you and where do you come from? The verb is imperfect. Miatem umeayin tabou. Who you and from where you coming? They represent a people group. As such, for them to come means that the people group is coming and will continue to come. 
In other words, if a group of emissaries was to go from Israel to Iran today, they would be representing Israel. If they form an alliance by cutting a covenant, then it would be from that time on, Israel could come to Iran and Iran could come to Israel. The new bond would be formed. With that understood, the Gibeonites will now speak out their answers to his questions. And as Adam Clark says, they will do it very artfully by a mixture of truth, falsehood, and hypocrisy. For sure, we are telling the truth. We wouldn't deceive you, and that's no lie. We are honest engine, even since our youth, and we shall be that way till the day we die. Here is the proof that we are honest men. These things will validate our story is true. If we have to, we will repeat it again and again. We would never do anything to deceive you. Trust in us. We are faithful to our word. We are the straightest of shooters. That is for sure. You can trust every word you have heard. We are honest, upright, clean, and pure. Our second thought today is make a covenant with us. It's verses 9 through 18. Verse 9. So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come. In full crafty mode, they completely ignore the first question, which would ruin any chance of an agreement. Instead, they launch directly into answering the second question while using a perfect verb. From land far, very, have come your servants. The your servants is singular. They are emissaries who have arrived to make an alliance with Joshua on behalf of their people. The perfect verb in essence means they are not coming, they have come. They are here to make a covenant, and to them it is a done deal in regard to their submission to it. Hence, they subordinate themselves to him. And this is, verse 9 continues, because of the name of the Lord your God, Leshem Yehovah Elohecha, to name Yehovah your God. The meaning of two equates to four. They acknowledge that Jehovah, Joshua's God, because Joshua stands as representative of all of Israel, is the reason for their coming. And more, verse 9 continues, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. The same word translated as his fame is used of the Lord now, which was used in verse 627 when referring to Joshua. It signifies a report and thus fame. They have heard the report of the Lord based on all that he had done in Egypt. But more, verse 10, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. It is singular, Ha-Emori, the Amorite. They speak of the two kings as one people implicitly in opposition to Israel, the people under the Lord. They then continue by stating their specific knowledge of these two kings. As such, it implies that they were very great kings to have been renowned even in a land, as they say, very far away. Therefore, it conveys the idea of the greatness of the Lord on behalf of Israel concerning what he did. Verse 10 continues, To Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. The battle against these two foes was recorded in Numbers 21. The name Ashtaroth, however, has only been seen in Deuteronomy chapter 1. It is believed to signify unity of instructions and thus one law. The emissaries openly speak about these as obviously great victories. Thus the report or the fame of the Lord had come to their knowledge because of these. What is notable is that this is where they stop their words on this line of thought. 
they prudently mention nothing about the crossing of the Jordan or of the battles of Jericho and Ai. This would give the sense that these recent deeds had not yet reached their ears. And yet, ironically, they might possibly have even heard the sounds of the battle and smelled the smoke of the burning if the wind was in the right direction. With that large gap in their supposed understanding of recent events, they then bolster this as they continue to speak. Verse 11, Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, All the pronouns in the verse are plural. The superlative nature of the statement is given to add icing to the cake they have already baked up. They note the elders, but mention no king. Thus, they are a people that is small and without power, or they are a people that would not have a threatening system of power under a single ruler. As such, mentioning the elders would be expected, but they add in all the inhabitants of our country. Their unity of thought is the great mutually agreed upon idea in this non-threatening country. It is as if the nation, the whole nation, is stirred up with the success of the Lord working on Israel's behalf, and so they came flooding forward, agreeing that something needed to be done. And so, verse 11 continues, take provisions with you for the journey. The word provision is singular. Kehu beyedchem tzedah laderek. Take in your hands provision to the way. Everything they loaded up is taken as one single provision. The reason for this is that it was all comprised of things that were supposedly suitable for sustaining them as a single group as they departed. You have a load of provision. Everything you need is provided. Head out. Verse 11 continues, and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. The plural of the pronouns continues. The whole nation of people told them to go and they are to meet the whole nation of people in Israel. You are great. We are your servants. The appeal is from people group to people group, one subordinating themselves to the other. And so, verse 11 continues, Now therefore, make a covenant with us. And now cut, you all, plural, with us, covenant. They are a friendly people that agree among one another. They don't have a king over them, and they are awed by the fame of the Lord over Israel. They have subordinated themselves to the people they desire to covenant with. There are no negatives to raise doubts as to what should be done, and certainly their story must be true. The evidence of it is right in front of them. Verse 12, this bread of ours, we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. The translation is close enough. They pull out their old bread that was either crumbled or insect-eaten and show it to them, claiming that it was hot on the day they left. The word ham or hot is introduced here. It will only be seen again in Job 37 verse 17. It signifies warm or hot, just as one would expect with bread that is freshly made and handed to the travelers. Verse 12 continues, but now, look, it is dry and moldy. Ve'ata hine. Yabesh vehayat nikudim, and now behold, dry and become crumbled or insect eaten. I don't know which it is. It is a nice touch if you think about it. Like in a Columbo movie, there is always some small thing that the bad guy overlooks. Well, in this case, it isn't the bread. One can see them having gone out behind the local baker's place and picking up pieces of bread that had been gnawed on by rats or that had been stepped on by the feet of passers by. 
It was a totally convincing argument because bread is what sustains. Who would travel without food that was satisfactory for a trip? And more. Verse 13, and these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see, they are torn. This is not an improbable thing. Wineskins that are filled have weight. When they rub long enough, they will split. If they are pulled out at a stop and the people drink, they may get put down on a rock that will puncture them. If the travelers do a bit of extra drinking after a long day, they are bound to be handled even a bit more roughly. A bit more drinking and, well, you get the point. Hence, after a while, they would bear the marks of their overuse. However, it still takes a lot to wear through skins. And so a long journey easily explains the matter. Columbo has not found a clue yet. Verse 13 continues, And these, our garments and our sandals, have become old because of the very long journey. The words should more appropriately read, From the exceeding greatness of the way. That's Young's literal translation. It refers to the route itself and the distance that was traversed. Again, this is what one would expect, especially in the dry, rocky area of the Middle East. A donkey would get tired if ridden too long, and so there would be plenty of walking next to it. If it was heavily loaded for a long journey, walking would be all that occurred. Everything is satisfactorily straight in this regard. And more. Everything here is given in complete contrast to Israel since they had left Egypt. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 29. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Israel would have heard their words, considered their own situation in light of that, and concluded that the Lord's miraculous provision for them was in complete contrast to these people now coming to seek the fame of the Lord. Everything passed the Colombo test in their eyes thus far. Verse 14, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions. It's obvious that the New King James Version translator of this passage simply copied someone else. The words of Israel are not in the text, and yet they are not italicized. Vayiku ha'anashim mitzedam, and took the men from their provision. Maybe the translator was too busy sampling the provision himself. Despite that, it is debated whether the men are the emissaries who simply take out their provisions to show Israel, which has already been noted above, or if it is Israel who took of them, meaning tried them. The answer is obvious based on the next clause. The men of Israel took and sampled. The verse reveals a careful attention to detail by Israel. They tried whatever was packed to see if it was fresh or not. And what they tried obviously passed the smell test. That is the last note of their inquiry into the matter. Verse 14 continues, But they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Ve'et pi Yehovah lo sha'alu, and mouth Yehovah no did they ask. This shows that the previous clause was referring to those of Israel. It also obviously shows a great failing on behalf of the people. But the text is careful to remove Joshua from the overall responsibility for the matter by leaving his name out. It is an indication that there is typology being conveyed for us to consider. Israel did not do the one thing that is most important of all in this matter. And yet, we have to consider it from both directions, don't we? Not only did Israel not seek the counsel of the Lord, 
But the Lord did not speak to Joshua as he had already done at least a dozen times so far in the book. This pretty certainly tells us that the Lord was willing to allow them to make their own mistakes. But they are mistakes that are one, not going to lead to a permanent disability in the plan of redemption. Two, will hopefully teach Israel a lesson. Three, it will actually have some benefit in the redemptive narrative. And four, will typologically show us something concerning the future. Some find this an actual violation of the Mosaic law. Here's what it says in Numbers 27. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word, they shall go out and at his word, they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. There is nothing to say that Joshua was required to go before the Lord in all instances. It simply notes that this was something that was available for him to do. And there are already recorded times where the Lord clearly speaks to Joshua. Hence, this cannot be considered a violation of the law. Verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. Joshua is the one highlighted here. So made, singular, with them, Joshua, peace, and cut, singular, to them, covenant, to live, them. It isn't just that Israel wouldn't kill them, but they are covenanted to preserve them as when nations are attacked by other nations. This is an important point that is not long in being brought forth. They made the appropriate sacrifices, and the covenant is cut. Verse 15 continues, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Not only did Joshua make peace with them and cut a covenant with them, but it is acknowledged by the rulers in an oath as well. With this now done, it cannot be undone. And yet, verse 16, and it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Rather than made a covenant, it more precisely reads cut a covenant. Other than that, the translation is fine. Nothing is said about how Israel found this out. It could be as simple as the men getting back on their donkeys, going back to Gibeon and telling them the news, and then Gibeon sending the men or other men back to Israel to tell the truth. Whatever the situation was, it was enough to cause Israel to respond with the display of their own displeasure. Verse 17, then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. In using the term, the children of Israel, it appears that the entire army went out just in case there was any trouble to arise. Hence, it took till the third day to reach them. With that noted, it next says, verse 17 continues, now their cities were Gibeon, Hephira, Be'erot, and Kiriath-Jerim. This shows that it was no small number of people involved in the treaty. For reference, Gibeon means hill town or hilly, Hephira means village, Be'erot means wells, Kiriath-Jerim means city of forests or city of honeycombs. 
The first three cities will eventually be allotted to the land grant of Benjamin. The last will be allotted to Judah. It explains why there will be trouble with something that Saul, the first king of Israel, will do in the future, which will cause great distress for Israel. Saul will kill many of the Gibeonites, thus breaking this treaty. Despite showing up in force, the text notes how Israel's hands are tied in his next words. Verse 18, but the children of Israel did not attack them. And no did strike them, sons Israel. There is a never-ending supply of speculation by scholars as to why they did not strike them, as if the entire text that we have gone through so far has no meaning and they need to try to discover some unintelligible reason. But the answer has already been given, and it will be given again in the next clause. A covenant was cut, an oath was made, and that is the end of it. There is no need to speculate beyond that. As it next clearly says, verse 18 continues, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Ki nishbeu lahem Yisrael, for had sworn to them rulers, the congregation in Yehovah God Israel. As just noted, a covenant was cut, and the elders of Israel had sworn an oath. This was in the name of the Lord, and it was absolutely binding. Despite this, verse 18 finishes with, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. The word lun signifies to lodge, as in staying overnight. However, it also means to complain or murmur. It is possible that our term to lodge a complaint is derived from this thought right here. For now, one can see that Israel is upset at what has transpired. They see four cities that would increase their own wealth through plundering. And they care less about their agreement than they do about enriching themselves. But the agreement has been made, so all they can do is moan about it against the rulers. Unfortunately, it's time to end the verses for the day. We're going to have to finish everything up next Sunday. Jody, you read this a day ago. Is it enjoyable? Yes. Okay. Everybody show up next Sunday. A few simple lessons to learn from the account are obvious. Even though there is nothing prescriptive in here for us today, it is always wise to consult the Lord before making any type of binding agreement. Our means of consulting the Lord is twofold. One is to read, know, contemplate, meditate on, and apply the word. If we do this, then we will not do what is contrary to the word. That is obvious. The second is to not neglect what Israel neglected, which is to speak to the Lord. Not everything we do or want to do is laid out in Scripture. As such, we have decisions that must be made that are up to us. But it is the imprudent soul who will fail to talk to the Lord about the important things, and indeed, even the minor things that we encounter in our daily lives. When we tell him what our plans are, we should then ask him to favor the decision if it is in his will, and to keep them from coming about if it is not. We can then assume that even if catastrophe results from our decision, that the Lord determined that it was the right thing to happen. The other thing we can learn from today's passage is that not everything people present to us is as it appears. Even those who seem convincingly honest often have an ulterior motive. Hence, I would ask you to consider who you believe and why you do so. Have you checked out the facts to the fullest extent possible? 
There is always a Jonas Nightingale ready to pull the wool over your eyes. So watch out concerning what you accept. Okay, we've got a wonderful story behind us, and we've got the end of it ahead of us. It's marvelous what this is picturing. Think on it in the week ahead. Contemplate why God would include this story in his word. And what is it telling us? What have we just gone through for the past eight chapters? And what is the Lord telling us in this one? The answer is there. It's right in front of you. You've got most of the information today. There's a couple more verses to go through, and then we'll see the end of it. But understand that the Lord purposes everything in his word to make sense to us if we're willing to think it through. So please do that. And as far as Jody, you all may be jealous that she knows what uh, I say, and nobody else does. She's the only person on this planet that gets to see these, and that's because she checks my work for errors. And there's always a lot of errors. It's filled with green comments by the time she's done. I got a new one over here, and it'll take me 17 hours just to correct her, you know, my, my poor English. But that's why she reads these. One other person does have access to these in case I kick off, and that is Sergio. And if he really wanted to know, he could get into my computer right now and read all the rest of the sermons. But that's why they get a little bit of favor. Don is not supposed to be seeing what Jody sees. So if she goes sneaking off to Don, then that's on her. Anyway, there you go with that. That's, I wanted to explain that. But the point of everything that we're seeing here eventually leads to one thought, Jesus, okay? Keep thinking about Jesus while we're evaluating these sermons, and it will all come to make sense. And even if you don't get the typology on your own, just keep thinking about Jesus because it's all pointing to something that he is doing, either revealing him personally or revealing what he will do for the people of the world, what he's going to do for Israel, and so on. It's all about Jesus. And so I would like to take just a moment in case there's somebody here watching the sermon today that has never called on Jesus. It's so simple. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ rose again, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, he died for your sins, implying that you're a sinner. Okay, there's something about sin that causes a breach between us and God. Sin is something that happens at a a particular moment in time. Okay, now we are born with sin. The Bible makes that explicit. We are born with sin and we're already condemned. But even if you ignore that, somewhere along your life, you know that you violated God's standard. And here we are, we're in what is called time, something created by God. And time is going in one direction. We can't go back and undo what we did. He is outside of time, meaning he's infinite. And therefore, our one sin, even if we only sin one time in our whole life, eternally separates us from an infinitely holy God. That's a problem. That is why God sent Jesus, is to restore us to himself. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He is the God-man. He's born of a woman. He's born of God. Therefore, he is the God-man. He can take his hand and place it upon finite you, and he can take his hand and place it upon infinite Father, and he makes the bridge possible once again. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again, proving that he is God and that your sins are forever taken away from you, and also proving that he had no sin of his own. These are the things we can deduce from the simple gospel, and all God asks you to do is to simply believe. That is it. Somebody that attends online emailed me yesterday and said, "Um, I I can't call you back. I called him to just say hi. He said, I can't call you back. I'm in a, uh, a meeting right now with the church. They're doing the way of the master um, 
gospel presentation. And I said, well, he does a good job, but he always errors on one thing. He says, you got to repent of your sin. I'm sorry. That is not a part of the gospel. It's not found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. You need to repent of your sin, but you don't need to do it in order to be saved. So let's think this through just so that we have it straight. Unless you know what your sin is, you can't change from it, okay? And that's not presented in the gospel. All it says is that Christ died for your sins, okay? And before we go on, the word repent does not mean what everybody thinks it means. It means only this, change your mind. That's all the word repent means. God doesn't put that into the the gospel unless you've already believed in a false God. Then you need to change your mind about that false God. You are now putting your trust in Jesus Christ, okay? After you are saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit, then Jesus said, go and make disciples. That's where you learn to change your mind about your sin. How can I know what, how I've offended a holy God until I know what offends a holy God? I need the Savior first, and then I go to him to cure me of my ills. So make sure that you get that one thing straight. Don't put the cart in front of the horse. He's going to be pushing all day long, and he's never going to get anywhere, okay? Come to Jesus Christ to be saved, and then learn about Jesus Christ all the days of your life. All the days of your life, learn this word and how you can be pleasing to God and why God so desperately keeps telling us the same thing again and again. And Jim said a week ago, we were talking about Mount Hermon in the Bible class. It's a picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. I won't get into why right now, but all of the typology from Hermon all the way down to the Dead Sea points to Christ. And I brought up a point I had never thought of before that somebody had told me, and Jim walked up after class and he said, it never ceases to surprise you how many times he keeps telling you the same thing in different ways. He just keeps telling us because he desperately wants us to understand the simplicity of what he is telling us. And we might get it wrong this way, and we might get it wrong this way, but now we've got three or four or ten hints about it. You probably shouldn't get it wrong that way. So, Read the Bible and keep reading it, and you're going to be refined in your thinking because of the marvelous splendor that is recorded in this word, okay? Our closing verse comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The Gibeonites were tricky, weren't they? They were deceitful. They were plotting. Jonas Nightingale was tricky. It's a fun movie. If you want to see a fun movie, it's an older movie, but Steve Martin always does a good job in what he does, and I think you'd enjoy it. But we can't come to that fullness of the knowledge of Christ unless we get into this word. It's not possible. You can go to church all day long and be told everything's going to be fine in the coming week. But that doesn't get any closer to understanding what God expects of you. Read the word, think on it, meditate on it, and don't be swayed and misled by people that have an ulterior motive. Okay, don't do it. Next week is Joshua 9, 19 through 27. Being slaves is what they deserveance. Yes, it is true. It is entitled, We Are Your Servants. Part two. That'll be our 19th Joshua sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. 
It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, I've got, I think this is a rather difficult question today. I've got here, I'm gonna start with the top one. Now last time I had a public gift certificate, Lee called it out so quickly I almost had a heart attack. So we'll see if he can repeat that today. This one will be kind of tough, but I think somebody might get it. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the God of Ekron is named. Who is the God of Ekron? Baal? Do you want to expand on the first one a little bit? Not Molech. Not Dagon. Do you want to expand on it just a little bit? Okay. Baalzebub. Okay. Yes. Not asteroids. You were close. Yeah. Okay. And then he's brought up in the New Testament as well. So there you go. Well, the re what made me think of that one is I mentioned Ekron in a sermon that I typed, I think, on Monday. It was fresh on my mind. But anyway, that was close. You were halfway there, but I can't tear a gift certificate in half, so that'll have to wait till next week. Okay. Got a poem and we're done. We are your servants. Part one. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, as the line is drawn, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it. Yes, that word, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. Gee, I wonder why. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, but the story isn't ended. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy, being sneaky was their decision. And they went to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us so that things go well. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? That would be a big minus and not a plus. But they said to Joshua, we are your servants, come, come. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come. We walked and walked, but happily no one tripped because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan. Yes, we heard that note to Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan who was at Ashtarot. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying and making a bit of fuss, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say, we are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day. We departed to come to you, but now look, it is dry and moldy. See how it has gotten that way? And these wineskins which were filled were new. And look, they are torn. See the proof? No need for an attorney. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions according to their word, but they did not ask the counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them their vow to them they did give. 
And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors who dwelt near them, those rascally men. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Be'erot, and Kiriath-Jerim. To them they had strong words to say. But the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers of the nation. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to hear your word spoken forth and analyzed. What a wonderful thing it is to just treasure the wonderful nuances that are in it that share us secrets about the glorious work of Jesus Christ our Lord Help us to think on it, to contemplate it, and to love it all the days of our lives until that glorious day when you come for us. And may that day be soon. Until then, we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It's been a very trying week. A lot of you know this, but some of you probably don't, is that um, last Tuesday night at about 9 or even 8 o'clock, there was a big noise outside, and it was like the whole world was lit up. And I thought, I bet you I know what's going on. And I walked out in the parking lot, and sure enough, they're putting in a new telephone pole right in front of our house. And when they were there getting ready to do this, I said, now I want you to know that there are two internet lines. One is right there, and they already had it all dug out. Everything was exposed. I said, that one, and there's one right there. One goes to my house, one goes to Dad's house. I said, please be careful. Oh, we're not going to do a thing to it. So I got up at uh, 3.30 in the morning and turned on the computer, opened my browser. I said, here we go. And I clicked on it and said, you do not have internet service. And dad is already outside on one of these emergency phones. He's already called the people. We have no internet. And it's not going to be installed or repaired at least until Wednesday. We're hoping that they'll just do it and whatever. But I've been living in the back here now for four days, five days, whatever it is, and I'll be doing it for another few days. I'm not even going home tonight because there's always a ton of work to do on Sundays. It's very long and tiring. I finish and I just go lay down and go to bed. That's the end of my day. There's no point in doing that, driving home, giving her a kiss goodnight, and then driving back here at 3.30 in the morning. So, I'm not on the top of my game today, but (laughs) I'm very appreciative of my own bed and of the windows in my house, and of the dogs that make noises, because sitting back there with no lights on, because I can't work under these fluorescent lights, is like being in a, like in a prison cell. So I'm very, I'm learning to be appreciative of the things that we do have. So where do you sleep um, tonight? Well, I've got a futon in the back of the truck, and I'll just lay it out on the floor, and I'll just push the chairs out of the way, and that'll be that. Because like I say, there's no point in going home. I mean, I'm already, it's already bedtime by the time I finish on Sundays, and so there's no point in that. So I'll be sleeping on a little futon in back. Um, There you go. Okay. 